Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Uh, well, all right, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew 5, and let me tell you, these guys, um, we, we have some little um, gremlin who has crawled in our system. It's not the guys back there. They do a wonderful job, but we have a little, a little gremlin that's obviously gotten in our system and is wanting to mess with me, um, and he's doing a sufficient job. So I will use the handheld mic, and um, we'll, we'll get going. So listen, if you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 5. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to read verses 17 through 20. This is one of the most, I know my wife says I exaggerate, I do, I know, I'm sorry. This is one of the most important passages in the Bible for understanding the whole Bible. In fact, there is a reformer, a guy named um, John Newton, he wrote uh, uh, the, uh, not a reformer, he was a Puritan, he wrote the, um, the song that we love to sing, Amazing Grace. He said that uh, most errors in understanding the Bible and how it fits together in the Old and New Testament come from misunderstanding what's going on in this text. So these are huge issues. We're going to look at what Jesus says about how the whole Bible fits together, what the Old Testament is, what its message is, and how it relates to the New Testament and how it relates to a Christian and what Jesus has done uh, to fulfill the Old Testament. So uh, that's the issues we're going to be looking at today. And before we do that, I want us to get into this uh, idea by just not jumping into it, but looking at the context of, of where we are as we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus opens up with these, these uh, admonitions. We call them the Beatitudes of how we as a Christian should live and be and live out our faith, that we should be poor in spirit and humble and meek, and, and then how we should relate to a world around us. We should be merciful and, and peacemakers. And all of this, Jesus then continues on, will bring about persecution. We will be hated. We'll be treated like he was treated. We'll be treated like his, the prophets were treated. And now, from this point on, Jesus is going to make a transition uh, about how we then, to be salt and light in this earth, need to be people that understand, truly understand what God requires of us. And so he is going to launch into, for the rest of chapter 5, he is going to clarify for his listeners and for us what the Old Testament really is getting at, which is our heart, not just our hands. And so the context is, is that Jesus, before he starts to speak about these specific issues like anger and lust and um, divorce and uh, temptation and all of these things, he wants to uh, correct uh, a misunderstanding of his ministry that was happening at the time. Many of the, the Pharisees and the scribes were classifying Jesus as a kind of theological liberal because he was hanging around tax collectors and sinners, and they would have said, he's a guy who is coming to dismantle the Old Covenant and the law because they thought he was breaking the laws. He was doing things like healing on the Sabbath and hanging out with people that were considered uh, ceremonially unclean. And so the, the accusation uh, of Jesus was that he was, that he was a liberal and that he wasn't a, a law keeper. And Jesus is coming along to say, no, 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 no. I haven't come to... Uh, disown or forget the law, I have come to actually fulfill it. 
And the, the, the things that he unpacks for us that we're going to look at today are just absolutely essential in understanding, uh, I think, how the whole Bible fits together. So here's our breakdown. We're not going to really have notes. I just want to give you a kind of a picture of where we're going. We're going to just read these four verses, and I think they, they, they uh, really form around two ideas. The first is Christ and the Old Testament, and then the Christian and the Old Testament. So the first two verses, 17 and 18, really tell us about what Christ has done with the Old Testament. And then the second two verses tell us how we as Christians then should relate to the Old Testament and how we should live. So let me read Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. An iota was the smallest letter, smallest character in the Hebrew alphabet. And the dot would be just like a little symbol that would differentiate the meaning between two letters. So it's like, he's like saying, not the smallest letter, like an I, and not even the, the dotting of an I or the crossing of the T. None of it will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, this is, a, this, is, this is a heavy statement, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What could Jesus mean by that? All right, with that, let's launch into this, this, uh, this, this uh, idea of what Christ has what his relationship is to the Old Testament, and then what, what our relationship is to the Old Testament. Before I do that, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your word, for your kindness to us, for your Holy Spirit, which is here now. I pray that you would encourage us as we look at your word to see and understand the Bible better, that Christians in this room would be simultaneously convicted and encouraged and spurred on to live the life that you've called us to, and that unbelievers that are present in this room would, would for the first time, understand what you have done to reconcile lost people to yourself through the perfect obedience and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection of your Son. Lord, would you be so kind as to do that, to open the eyes of unbelievers this morning. And would your people glorify you as we gather together today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christ in the Old Testament. Let me read verses 17 and 18 again. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Because remember, the, the accusation was that Jesus was disregarding Old Testament law rather than um, abiding by it. He says, no, no, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the first thing that I want us to understand is that what does Jesus mean by the law and the prophets? For, for Jesus in his time and for the vernacular of the people at that time, the law and the prophets was just like shorthand to describe all of the Old Testament. So we've done this a couple times before, but I think it might be helpful. If you have your Bible, 
Go ahead and flip to the table of contents. I want you to see how the Old Testament is sort of pieced together. Go ahead and do it. Flip to the table of contents. And you notice in your, in your table of contents, you see the Old Testament there. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. A helpful way to divide up the Old Testament is, is, is 17, 5, and 17. Okay, So the first 17 books of your Old Testament are Genesis through Esther. Right? And those are, are history. Those are like historical narrative. They're stories about God's dealing with his people. So obviously it begins in Genesis, and it's the Genesis account. It's the account of creation, and then the calling of Abraham, and the forming of the nation of Israel. And then into Exodus, throughout the rest of those 17 books, is the history of God's dealing with his people. So the first 17 books of the Old Testament is the entire story of the Old Testament. The whole history of the Old Testament can be found relatively chronologically in those 17 books. Now, this phrase, the law, refers more specifically to the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Sometimes called, maybe you've heard this word, Torah, which is just a word that means law. So those are the, the law, but it also, in those first five books, contains a, a big part of the history of God's people in the Old Testament. But sometimes, for shorthand, they're referred to the law because it's in that particular point in history, during the writing of those five books by Moses, that God gave his people, the Old Testament nation of Israel, the law, and by his law, giving his law to them through Moses uh, on Mount Sinai, formed his people. So sometimes um, we, we, we think of that word law as really referring to those whole five books, and even to, to the first 17 books. But those first 17 books are law and history. It's the whole story. It's the whole chronology from creation all the way up until uh, the 400 silent years before Jesus comes in Matthew. Then the next five books, Job through Song of Solomon, are what are often called wisdom literature. And these are books that, Psalms is obviously the hymn book of, of the nation of Israel. Proverbs is, is just a, a wisdom book. Uh, Ecclesiastes, again, is a book about wisdom and the vanity of life. And Song of Solomon is about marital love between a man and a woman, echoing the divine love of God for his bride, his people. And Job is this one particular story about how one man endures great suffering, albeit all of it underneath the sovereign hand of God. And so these five books, Job through the Song of Solomon, are kind of like split off from the rest of the Old Testament that are like songs and, and wisdom thoughts and personal experience of particular people written by particular people like David and others to really express the heart of God's people and to give specific wisdom. So these five books don't move the story along. They're just five books of wisdom about human experience during this time of the Old Testament. And then the final block, the next 17 books, Isaiah, these are the prophets, Isaiah through Malachi are the prophets. Sometimes you hear them referred to as major prophets, which are the first five, Isaiah through Daniel, and then the minor prophets, which are the next 12, Hosea through Malachi. They're called major and minor, not because Isaiah is more important than anything else, but because they're just larger. And so these are the prophets. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. These 17 prophets are then God speaking through specific men who God has raised up to speak 
back to, to speak into the life of his people during the history, during the time of Genesis through Esther, through the storyline. So I want you to see how the, the Old Testament fits together. And oftentimes, as Jesus says there, it's referred to as the law and the prophets. So the law, meaning God giving the law, and the history of God dealing with his people, Genesis through Esther, and the prophets, the prophets speaking back, being raised up as individuals to speak to God's people during those particular episodes in their history. So the next 17 books, Isaiah through Malachi, the the prophets, are not moving the story along. They're God's utterances and direct messages to his people that fit into the timeline along the way from Genesis to Esther. And so back back to our text in the New Testament where Jesus says that all of this... All of the Old Testament, and that's what he means when he says the law and the prophets, I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. In fact, Jesus says that all of the Old Testament is actually about him. Listen to what he says in Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. This is an amazing text where Jesus, after his sacrificial death on the cross, in fact, after his resurrection... Jesus saunters up next to two disciples on their way to uh, the, the road to Emmaus. So there's these two disciples who obviously knew Jesus. They were dejected because they hadn't heard about his resurrection yet. And Jesus is sort of veiling who he is, not revealing his true identity to them, comes up to them, asks them, hey, what's, what's, what's going on? And they say, oh, well, haven't you heard the, the, the Messiah has come, he's been crucified, and they're dejected because they don't know that he's risen yet. And this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, that's Moses, the writer of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. At that point, the only scriptures that were written were the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All right, so just this morning, a little while ago, in our, uh, we had a Sunday morning class, and I was um, substitute teaching. And the class didn't throw any spitwads at me or anything. It was, it was a pretty, actually a pretty good substitute teaching gig. And we were talking about this sort of difficult sort of idea of the incarnation of Jesus. But think about that Bible lesson. That Jesus, on a seven-mile walk to Emmaus, saunters up next to these two disciples and explains the whole Old Testament to them and says, guys, it was all about me. He says the same thing to uh, the Pharisees in John chapter 5. Listen to John 5, verse 39 through 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, meaning the Old Testament, it is they, the scriptures, that are bearing witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So Jesus is saying, you got to understand this to understand the Bible, that the Old Testament is not just a collection of moral stories so that we can do flannel graph Sunday school classes for our children, but it is a 
one story about God's redemptive dealings with his people and about one great promise that God has made about how he will rescue his people from their sin. The whole Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, is about Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that he has come to fulfill, to embody the Old Testament. So let's just think before we get into what our relationship is to the Old Testament, let's think about how Jesus specifically fulfills the Old Testament. So three, just three thoughts here about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. First, he fulfills the prophetic utterances, the prophetic words, the prophecies uttered in the Old Testament. There are many, 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 many prophecies in the Old Testament that speak about this coming Messiah that will come. In fact, Matthew, Matthew's gospel is very concerned. Matthew himself was a Jew. And Matthew was very concerned. He was writing primarily to his countrymen, to other Jews. And Matthew, in his gospel, you will read about 15 times, he will say things like, this took place about some event in the life of Jesus. He says, this took place in order to fulfill what was written by the prophet Isaiah or some other prophet. And so, in fact, even before we get into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, in the first four chapters of Matthew, there are five times when, G, when Matthew, about the birth of Jesus, says, this happened to fulfill what was written. So Jesus comes and he fulfills, he literally fulfills, he is the answer, he's the fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament. He's the one that the prophet Isaiah was speaking about when he talked about how there shall be a child born of a virgin. He is the one, he is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 that will, was perfect in all his ways, but yet was esteemed, stricken, and, and crushed by God the Father on the cross. He is the one that all of these prophetic words and utterances in the Old Testament are pointing to, and he is the fulfillment of them. But he doesn't just fulfill prophecy. He also fulfills types and, and shadows that we see, Old Testament figures that are, are, are there to point forward towards him. They're meant to be more than just individual people, but they're meant to be a kind of shadow of the Christ to come. So we, we talked about this a lot when we went through the book of Genesis a few months ago, that, that Abraham and his sacrifice of his son Isaac on the mountain, that whole scene is meant to be a kind of shadow of how God the Father will lay down his son on the cross or on the cross and that he will provide he will provide through his son uh, like a ram caught in the thicket all of that is meant not to just to be now men you need to be willing to lay down what's most important to you for God right you need to be able to give God what's most important just this Friday night Jennifer and I were driving to North Georgia to go to our son's football game and 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 she knows what I'm about to say we were driving on a little windy road up in the mountains of uh, North Georgia, and we came across a church sign, and it said, it said, Jesus died on the cross. What will you give in return? <laughs> oh. I mean, I, I was just... 
I fussed about it for about 10 minutes and Jennifer's over there just rolling her eyes, right? And do you see how we often do that with the truths of the Bible? We moralize them. And so the point of Abraham, like, like Jesus, what are you going to give in return to God? As if you could do anything to repay the eternal Holy Son of God's sacrifice on the cross. No, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a barter here. I'll do this so that you do this. That's not the gospel, and we'll get to that in a second. But sometimes we even look at Old Testament stories like that. Like, come on, boys and girls. Abraham gave up what was most important to him. Now you need to give up what's most important to you, and that's what it means to be a good Christian. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is it's a picture of the cross. It's a picture of redemption. Don't we do the same? I can remember being in a Sunday school class in El Centro, California, in a mainline church, reading through the story of Moses, being this stammering, nervous guy who was complaining with God that he couldn't be used by God because I guess he had a speech impediment or he was nervous. And I was a scared, little, anxious little kid. And I remember I was scared to read out loud, right, in in God's peculiar kindness. He makes me a preacher who, that's what I do. But I can remember being scared to read out loud. And I remember my Sunday school teacher saying to me, oh now Brad, Moses had a stammering tongue too. And if you will just be more like, come on, be more like Moses. He was courageous, right? Well, that may be some application there, but the point of the story is not that Moses had courage so you and Johnny and Susan can be courage when you're anxious or scared. The point of Moses in the Old Testament is he becomes a shadow or a type of Jesus. Moses is the deliverer of God's people who faces the evil tyrant, sticks his stake in the ground, and through him God does miraculous things, rescues his people out of Egypt, parts the Red Sea, and Moses leads his people across into salvation. Moses is an imperfect shadow of the true deliverer that will come Jesus. That's what the Old Testament is about. One more time, just one more story. Don't we do the same with David? You've heard this one before, right? So, you know, we got some problem we're facing, and don't we moralize the Old Testament? We say, come on now, Johnny or Susie, be like little King David, the shepherd boy. He faced his giant, and he got three smooth stones, and he practiced, and he was good at his craft. He warmed up his arm, and he slung those stones. He was courageous in the face of the giant. So you too, Johnny and Susie, be more like David and face your giants. And we're like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then we run off, and we just get busted up by the giant again, and we come back and hear more moralism, right? That's not the gospel. No, what is the point of the story of David and Goliath? The point of the story is, hey, Johnny and Susie, you're a jacked up, broken people like Israel in the woods. You're scared, you're defeated, and you can't do anything about it. (laughs) And David is like a shadow of Jesus, the true warrior king who is coming to fight for you. But this good and gracious king who is coming, Jesus, 
won't fail ultimately in other areas of his life like David does. He is a good and perfect king. And because he has slayed the dragon of sin, death, and the grave, if you are in him, if you are part of his kingdom, you share in his victory. So don't trust in yourself. Trust in the true and better warrior king Jesus. And so the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. He fulfills it in types and shadows that picture him, and he fulfills it in prophecy. And by the way, just before we move on to this last little aspect of the way Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, which I think is really at the heart of what we want to get into today, is even if you've ever had trouble with some of those passages in the Old Testament where God commands, this happens in Joshua, where God commands Joshua and the people of Israel to completely eradicate a whole people group of idolaters and pagan false god worshipers so that God's people don't intermingle with these people and because he knows his people are so weak that if they become neighbors with these false idol-worshiping peoples that his people at the state of their development and sanctification that they won't, as God intends them, they won't have an influence on the world around them. The world around them will have more of an influence on them. And so God commands his weak baby nation Israel to slaughter people. And we read that and we're like, oh gosh, what's going on there? And we just kind of avoid that and it's hard for us to talk about friends that don't believe. What's going on there? That also is a picture of what Jesus and what the gospel is, is that God is deadly serious about sin. And he is so committed to the sanctification of his people so that he says to give us a picture and thank God that we didn't live back then, right? Because very few of us in this room are ethnic Jews, if any of us. We'd, be, we'd all be on, the, we'd be on the Gentile side. We'd be on the, the bad end of the spear on that gig, Right? And God, in his seriousness, to display his glory to the nations, he is so committed to the sanctification of his people that he is willing to slaughter idolatrous, pagan, pagan, false-worshipping people to have it be a timeless, eternal picture of the commitment he has to the holiness of his people that he has chosen from eternity past. And when we read that, what should we, what should we take? Like, oh my gosh, that's really difficult. I mean, let's just kind of skip over that and get to all the, the, like the easy stuff. When I read about God taking out people groups through his people, I realize that that's the way God wants me now as a Christian in this time to treat my sin. To slay it, to be serious about it. And for me to trifle with things that will kill me and destroy me is a complete misunderstanding of what God is saying to his people. God... Uh, Jesus fulfills prophecy. He fulfills types and shadows. But then second, thirdly, how does he, what's his relationship to the Old Testament? He fulfills the law. He fulfills the Old Testament law. So on the mountain there, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And then subsequently, he gave Moses many, many more commandments that he was to issue to the people of Israel. In fact, there, if you total all of them up in the Old Testament, there are about 613 different either commands, do this, or prohibitions, don't do this, right? 
And what does Jesus do for that? Well, Jesus says here in our text that he has come to fulfill this law. So what does that mean? Well, in order to understand that, it's helpful for us to think of the law in several different categories, okay? I want you to think of the Old Testament law. When you hear that word law, I want you to think of all of what the Old Testament says about the law, all these 613 different prohibitions or commandments. Think of them in three categories. Now, I want to I mention that the Bible doesn't necessarily like, have a verse anywhere that splits them up in this three way, but I think this has just been a helpful way that Christians throughout the ages have kind of helped to classify and understand different aspects of the law throughout the centuries. So one aspect of many of the laws in the Old Testament is that they were laws that was called ceremonial and civil laws. They were laws that either governed, governed the way Israel should live as a people, or more primarily, they governed the way Israel should make atonement for their sin. And it had much to do with the sacrifices that they were supposed to make on a, on a yearly basis. And had much to do with the rituals that they had to do to be ceremonially clean. And if they you know, ate this food, they were ceremonially unclean. Or if they touched this thing, they were unclean. And so God, during this particular time in redemptive history, because remember, God is doing something in his people in the Old Testament. He is forming a people... He is working out their holiness. He's pointing forward to the true deliverer, the true sanctifier, the true savior, the true Messiah to come. And all of what he's doing in the Old Testament in Israel is kind of like a temporary object lesson that is pointing to the sanctification and the salvation that will come through Jesus. And so he gives all of these laws about how they should be clean and about how they should atone for his sacrifices. Now, what is our relationship to those laws? Well, the Bible tells us in Hebrews. So flip to Hebrews chapter 10. It says that Jesus has done something to all of these aspects of the law, the ceremonial, sacrificial aspects of the law. So the writer of Hebrews says this about the law. For since the law, meaning these ceremonial and sacrificial aspects of the law about how God's people should do these things yearly and feasts and festivals and sacrifices... We're but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So these aspects of the law, these ceremonial, sacrificial aspects of the law, are like temporary shadows where God is showing his people that atonement, that rightness with him, that cleanliness is super important. But all of it is meant to prepare them for the one who can ultimately make them clean. Because here's the deal. You can sacrifice a goat yearly, but you're still sinful. In fact, there would be this day of atonement. It's in Leviticus. And they would have this day of atonement where God very specifically outlines how they should atone for their sins as a nation. Right? And so they would come and they would get two, uh, two goats, two two animals, and one of them would be the scapegoat, and the priest who stood for the people, even though he was sinful, he stood for the people, and he would put his hands on the scapegoat, and he would transfer the sin of the people to the goat, and then they would, they would have one guy who was assigned to take the goat out into the wilderness and lead it away. That's where we get the phrase scapegoat, because we're putting all of the sin 
on that one goat and we're leading him away. Can you imagine being the guy that leads the one sinful goat that represents all the sin of the people? He's like, come on, come on, let's go. You know, you just take him out, right? And then there was another, another animal that then would be slaughtered as a sacrifice. The problem is you'd have to do it every year because we still sin. We're still, we're, still, we're still busted up. And so you'd need another goat and you'd need another goat and you need another goat, and another lamb, and another goat, and another lamb, and another goat. And Jesus comes now, Hebrews tells us, once and for all. So if you skip down to verse, uh, verse 9 in Hebrews 10, it says that he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Meaning he's done away this old system of sacrifice, as important as it was, is now it's come to its end because Jesus is the perfect lamb who once and for all dies for us. So verse 10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So all of these Old Testament temporary sacrifices are temporary shadows that are in effect until the one perfect lamb comes to sacrifice once and for all. That's why, if you've been coming to Crosspoint for ten and a half years that we've been a church, we have never sacrificed an animal. <laughs> right? Although we have a cat. <laughs> no, it needs to be without blemish and spotless. And yeah, so it certainly wouldn't be our cat. Or it's not my, it's my wife and my children's cat. I actually don't share an ownership of the cat. Why? Because the sacrifices have come to an end. I'm going to get in trouble for that one, by the way. I'm so glad that my daughter's not in here right now. If she was in here, I'd wreck her, and I would have major reparations to do um, because there's a bit of a dispute about how I feel about that particular animal that lives with us. Um, <laughs> sorry. Love my dogs. Don't love the cat. But anyway... Um, <laughs> The sacrifices have come to an end because of Jesus. So when we read the Old Testament and we see all of these sacrificial things, we can say, not that they're unimportant, but that Jesus has fulfilled them. He's brought them to an end by his work on the cross. Now, what about other aspects of the law? And sometimes this is called the moral aspect of the law. Sometimes most notably understood by the Ten Commandments. Don't don't be idolatrous. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't take another man's wife. Don't covet. Don't all of these things. All of these aspects of the law, which really get to our heart, are still in force. In fact, they're picked up in the New Testament. All of these things mentioned in these aspects of the law where God is getting to our heart, they are all reinforced. So in the New Testament, you hear no mention of animal sacrifice and ceremonial uncleanness and how you need to wear clothes of this particular type of fabric and how you can't eat this particular food because Jesus has atoned for sin and he's made his people clean once and for all. Now, no thing that you can do or no fabric that you can wear or not wear or no thing that you can or cannot eat will make you clean. Only Jesus can make you clean. So that part of the law has been fulfilled. It's come to an end. But then there are laws in the Old Testament that speak to our heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. 
Jesus has come to take that portion of the law and move it from the outside to the inside of our hearts. And that's what we get into in the next. So let's read now about the Christian and the Old Testament. So what does this do for us? So Jesus says, verses 19 and 20, we have to feel the weight of this. This has got to crush us and humble us before it can heal us. Jesus says this, okay? So he says, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Now, what's our relationship? See, verse 19, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, so important. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you imagine the first century hearers there of what Jesus is saying? They're saying, well, then how in the world are we ever going to make it to heaven? Because they knew that the most righteous people alive were the scribes and the Pharisees who were, quotation marks, the best law keepers of anybody alive at that time. And so what is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that righteousness now, because of his work on the cross, moves from mere exterior conformity to interior transformation. So it is now an issue of the heart. We need now not to just be able to follow the exterior of the law, but we need something to be done on the inside of us. And this is the promise of what Christ will do for his people. And in fact, even this was mentioned in the Old Testament. So go to Jeremiah 31. We'll have it on the screen. Listen to what this promise is about how we will be able to have a righteousness that is not just exterior, but it's interior. It's in our heart. The the new covenant prophesied this gospel spoken in the Old Testament through one of the prophets. Jeremiah says this, verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the one that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying, this new relationship that I'm going to have with my people is not going to be like the one that I did through Moses where I gave them this law that had a temporary purpose in God's redemptive plan to be a picture, a temporary shadow of the eternal reality that will come, which is Jesus and his work on the cross to fulfill the law for us. So he says, it's not going to be like the one I made with them when I took them by their hand out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33, here it is. Here's Here's the verse. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So God is saying that I am going to do it for you. Your hearts are dead and bent towards rebellion, and you cannot obey me. And God has endured centuries of that storyline playing itself out over and over and over and over again. His people, even though he gives them everything they need, continue to disobey him. Why? Because sin has done more than just neutralize us. It has killed us. 
And God now promises that he will come and he will write his law not on tablets of stone, but on our hearts. And then in Ezekiel chapter 36, don't flip there, we'll have it on the screen. He deepens this promise. In Ezekiel 36, this promise of what Jesus will do through his life and death and resurrection. He says, I will give you, verse 26 of Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here's the promise. See this, see this, here's what's going on. God is allowing all of what happens in the Old Testament to be a picture, to display his holiness. And now, because he knows that his people can never actually do it, he promises the Messiah to come, to come and fulfill and obey the law perfectly for us. Jesus fulfills it. He's the embodiment of the prophecy. He's the reality of the shadow. He is the one true human, fully God, fully man, who obeys the law for us. And now he lays down his perfect, righteous, holy, eternal law-abiding life on the cross to even be the punishment that the law demands. And then he rises again in victory over sin, grave, and all of its consequences, and now gives life to those whom he is saving. And this, friends, is the gospel. This is the promise of the New Testament, that we are dead in our sins, completely unable to do anything about it. And when God determines to save a person, he comes into their dead heart and he makes it alive. you got to see that to understand the gospel. See, the gospel is not like we read on the church sign going up to, to North Georgia. It's not, Jesus died for you. What will you do in return? <laughs> um, go to Sunday school? Not go to rated R movies? Stop smoking? Put a filter on my internet? What will you do? The answer is nothing. You can't do anything because you're dead. In fact, the law, Will read it before from Romans 8. It's the law of sin and death. It's killed us and it's rightly killed us. And so the promise of the gospel is, is that Jesus comes and he, because he's alive, because he's defeated death on the cross, now because he's the king over everything, gives us new life. He makes us alive. And here's what he does. If you become a Christian, this is what happened to you. Spiritual heart surgery. You were like Lazarus. I know I use this analogy all the time, but it's so good. You just, I'm just going to keep using it until I spontaneously combust when I'm 80 years old. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep doing it, and you're going to know. Eventually, you're going to read it for yourself in John 11. This is what happened to you if you were a Christian, whether you were 30 years old and you were chasing the world, or whether you were five years old and it just... Just your mom or your dad shared the gospel with you and you trusted in Christ. Every human being is born dead in sin. Our hearts are dead. Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead people can't do anything. They can't give anything back to God. They can't respond to God's law. 
And so Jesus fulfills the law, obeys the law for us, and now comes to the edge of the tomb of our life and says to us, by the power that he has as the Son of God, just like he said to Lazarus, get up. And when he says get up, he gives us a new heart so that we can get up and obey God. And now he's given us this new heart and now we are enabled through God's word, through God's community to live a life of ever increasing obedience to God. And now here's what the reformers said, okay? Now remember, this is so important. You gotta see this. And this is what we're going to end on here, just this thinking about these, the, the way then the Christian should live in response to God and his law after they've been made alive. Is that, what, what relationship then do we have? Now, okay, I'm a Christian. God has made me alive. And by the way, if you're an unbeliever in here and you're thinking, oh my gosh, it's not up to me. What do I do? I came in here thinking that I'm going to try and improve my life. Maybe God in his kindness is for the first time opening your eyes to see that there's nothing that you can do. And so instead of rejecting that and prideful arrogance, fall into grace. Like say, praise God, I don't have to do anything. The very fact that I'm realizing that is very likely evidence that God is giving you, he's opening your eyes, he's making you alive so that you can finally turn from your own abilities and turn to him. Do that right now. Don't fuss with God that it's not up to you and your morality. Thank God and rest in his son's work on the cross on your behalf. Do it even now. Forgot what I was going to say. You got me so excited about. So then what is the Christian's relationship to the law? Here's what the reformers said. They said that this law, this standard of righteousness, crushes us. And it humbles us. It kills us. And it drives us to Christ. And then Christ makes us alive. He saves us. And then they said he sends us back to the God's heart of God's law so that we might then live in ever-increasing measure. So now, what role does God's way have in the life of the Christian? Well, it has everything to do with the Christian life. It means now that the law is not now an exterior box that we check, but it's an interior way of living. And the heart of God's law is in force for the Christian, he sends us, the law sends us to Christ to be justified. And then Christ sends us back to the heart of the law to be sanctified and live in such a way that we together as a group of people become an ever increasing clearer and more beautiful and crisper display of what it means to follow Jesus. And now this law that we hated now becomes this law of what it means to follow Jesus in this world is something that we delight in. Christ obeyed the law. He took the punishment of the law for us. He made us alive by giving us a new heart so that we can obey the heart of God's law and enjoy him forever. So two implications and we end with this. What does this do for the Christian? As they look at the Old Testament and say, oh God, this is what you require. You're so serious about holiness and righteousness and atonement. And thank God that Jesus has done this for me. And now I need to look at the principles and the realities and the shadows of what the Old Testament pointed to. And I need to live out the heart of that in my life now. And I'm enabled to now. In fact, I can because God has given me a heart through the gospel to do this. What does this do for the Christian? Well, first it frees us 
from legalism, doesn't it? I think many Christians who truly do believe in Jesus and are truly born again still sort of lived yoked and enslaved by this sense that they are made right with God or that they stay in good standing with God by how well they are obeying God. And certainly sanctification is important, and there's all sorts of things that we need to say as caveats along this, but we are by nature legalists. What, what is legalism? Here's just a couple different forms. Well, one, le- one form of legalism is that we, we think that we are um, saved by our works. I don't think anybody here hopefully doesn't believe that, but some people do. Another form of, of, of legalism, and I think this is very prevalent in our culture, and maybe I think it, it, it seeps into our lives as well, is it's this sort of contractual obedience that if I do X, then God is obligated to meet me with Y. Right? And I think, I think that's, I mean, we bash the prosperity gospel here, and, you know, we think about these guys that preach that wicked, false message, Right? Like you give, you know, open up, you know, give, you know, call this number and give, and God will open up the windows of heaven and bless you. And we just laugh at that and say, oh, that's just clownish. But doesn't that, doesn't that, doesn't that, doesn't that bad root kind of exist in our hearts sometimes too? Where we think, you know, if I just, I've even thought this here as the pastor of this church. I've just, just had a rough week and I thought, you know, if I just, if I just kind of am a little sweeter to my wife, spend a little bit more time in my Bible, pray a little bit more, the three duds of a sermon I preached the week before God will kind of erase that and he'll give me a good one. Right? Like, God, if I do this, then you, you kind, of, kind of give me a little juice. Now, do we, does God respond to our willful obedience? Yes, but isn't it, you see how that kind of clouds our mind and we think that it's really just a form of legalism. And then I think we see, I think we see in, in just, just our hearts, we see that, I think I call it the Christian maturity police. And if this is you, just, just hear this. Just, just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. What I mean by the Christian maturity police is maybe older, more mature Christians who always seem to notice the immaturity of younger, less mature Christians. You know, and they're just kind of the... That's their sort of posture towards people. Well, guess what, brother or sister? Baby Christians mess up their diapers. That's what they do. People sin. That's just like veiled legalism, isn't it? And, and, and may, the, may the Holy Spirit come in and crush us from that, free us from that. And so in one sense, the gospel frees us from legalism, but it also frees us from falling off into the other side of the ditch, which is a sinful expression of liberty, a license, right? So it frees us from legalism, and it frees us from laxness. It frees us from saying, okay, uh, uh, that's just legalism. I don't have to do do that. I don't have to do that. But then we fall off into the other side of the ditch and just say, I can do whatever I want, right? And we just keep doing it. No, the gospel frees us from being judged according to our works, thanks God. But it saves us, Ephesians 2.10, so that we can joyfully, progressively, slowly become more and more like Christ and delight in obeying Him. And delight in that is the key word. It frees us from sinful liberty. He has done this 
so that we can live this way, and he does it for our joy. So if there is a young man in here that's just fighting and wrestling with sin, and you're so racked with guilt because you cannot stay away from sexual sin, you need to know that you are not right with God based on your ability to fight that sin on your own. But you are right with God because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you alone. And that when you trust and put your hope in that, that gives evidence that God has given you a new heart and new desires, then with the help of community and God's word around you, you are able to fight that sin and pursue a greater joy and become more and more like Jesus. And collectively with a bunch of other jacked up Christians, you are able to display the surpassing worth of Christ to an onlooking world. And then our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees because our righteousness is not a dead heart doing exterior things. But our righteousness is a new heart by sovereign grace that can now increasingly follow God more and more and display the surpassing worth of Christ to an onlooking world. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what the Old Testament is pointing to. That's how Jesus has freed us to live. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take these words and this truth that you, through your son Jesus, have given the law and you have fulfilled the law and now you have made us alive so that we can follow your law. And your law, following your ways, is not a begrudging religious duty, but it's better than anything that this broken, counterfeit world has to offer. Lord, would you help us see that afresh? Would we, as your people, see that afresh? And would we, would our hearts be warmed? And would we desire to make much of Jesus in our lives? As we become increasingly more and more like him, and as we are serious with sin, as we read your Old Testament law about how serious you were with uncleanness, Lord, let us be people that read that and take heed and realize that you have freed us so that we can walk in joy and let us take sin seriously and let us take sanctification seriously and let it produce in us just this long-suffering patience in us for other people in this room and let it produce in us a humility and not a, not a kind of maturity police sort of legalistic way of living with one another. Let this be a safe place where people can be wrestling with the implications of what it means to follow Jesus. And Lord, for any unbelievers in this room, that it, maybe the thing that's kept them away from you has been this broken notion, this false idea that Christianity is about following the rules. Lord, let them see that they can't follow the rules. None of us can follow the rules. 
Jesus has followed the rules. He has upheld your righteousness for us. And then he has given us new hearts to where now we can delight in the good and gracious way that you've called us to, to live according to your ways. Lord, let them see that that is the call of the Christian. That is what you are bidding them to come to, joy. Lord, I pray that today, even now, they would turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in Christ, who alone, who alone can bear the weight of your justice. Lord, would you do that even now as we respond to you in Jesus' name, amen.